Thank you, brother. Thank you for leading us and those that serve with you, and leading us in worship and those that serve every single Sunday. We're so grateful and thankful um, for your contribution and your service to this church. Hope you have a Bible with you, something that you can preferably open up, if not something that you can turn on, that you'll join me in Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. And then if you came in and you got one of these bulletins on the back of that, there'll be some notes if you want to reference that or use that during our time together in the Word. But Exodus chapter 7, a few moments we will pick up in verse 14 and go through the rest of the chapter this morning. We've been in a series of lessons out of the book of Exodus, a series of lessons that give us examples and ideas and principles of what it looks like to be set apart, not just set apart by ourselves, but set apart by God. And so much of the book of Exodus is about how God has his set people, the Hebrews, the Israelites, and how he brings them out of the bondage in Egypt and how he sets them apart, makes them a unique people with a unique identity, a unique lifestyle, and a unique calling and a purpose from God. And so just as God is doing that there in Exodus, we know for those that are in Christ, we are a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And there's this process of sanctification that is continually be happening in our lives where God is setting us apart from the lost, setting us apart from the worldly desires and the worldly pursuits. And I'm not saying in a way that we don't have anything to do with them. I'm just saying in a way of our conduct, in the way of our behavior, in the way of our lifestyles. There is to be a distinction between those that are in Christ and those who who are not. So we've been looking at the book of Exodus and what the, ex- the, uh, the story here, the, the narrative has to show us about what it means to be set apart. Last week we were in Exodus 7 looking at the sovereignty of God. If you remember back to last week and, and Moses and Aaron are sitting there and they're going, God, we don't understand. God, it doesn't make sense. Pharaoh does not seem to be listening to what we have to say. The people of Israel are not uh, being receptive. They're upset. The Egyptians are upset. Pharaoh is upset. Everybody's upset. And God comes into Moses and Aaron and says, there's only one person you need to be concerned about what they think and how they feel, and that is me because I am God and because I'm sovereign. And it is still true today, there is only one opinion that matters in this room, and that is not yours, and that is not mine, but it is the opinion of God. So he says, he he starts off by saying, all right, Moses, you're, you're, you're really concerned, but you're forgetting one key factor. God has spoken. And so we looked at last week, when it comes to the sovereignty of God, it comes down to his will, his glory, and God's way. And we were talking about how that is what gives us the picture of sovereignty. This morning, I want to continue in that, thre- in that thread by talking about God's authority. And you may say, well, Spence, isn't sovereignty and authority the same thing? Well, when you talk about the attributes of God, when you talk about the characteristics of God, you may say, well, yeah, that could be the same thing. But here's the way that I think about it. We have all been told that gravity exists. And I could take you, and I could take you to the top of this roof, and I can take you over to this edge, and you'd be looking down over the bank and the big flagpole, and you could theoretically, in your mind, know that gravity is real, that gravity exists, that gravity impacts people, that gravity has an effect on people. But standing on the top of the building right here, looking to the north, you may say, but I really do not understand exactly how gravity works. Then... Somebody pushes you, 
and you take the flight. For some it may be a flight, for some it may be a fall. But you take the flight down to the ground. What you are experiencing is, is you have moved from the sovereignty of God in theory and in your mind and knowing it exists to now you are seeing the revealed authority of God. Because now you've not just gone from knowing that God is sovereign, but as God shows his authority over us, we get to see that is how God's authority is on display. That is how God's authority works out of my daily life. That is how God's authority is demonstrated all around us. So here in Exodus chapter 7, we go from God just saying I am sovereign and I am in charge now God is going to show them in a tangible physical visible way I have authority it's one thing to know that God is in charge it's another thing to see that God is in charge so here in Exodus chapter 7, we move from just the conceptual idea of the sovereignty of God to now we see the authority of God on display. So here in Exodus chapter 7, as God goes from saying, let me remind you, I am sovereign. And then in verse 14, he starts to say, now let me show you my sovereignty in the way of my authority. So in verse 14, the story continues. The narration continues. And this is what the word of God says. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. Then you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. As we begin to look at this passage and this narration of Scripture, I want you to see with me how God reveals His authority over our lives. We understand that God is sovereign. We understand that God is a creator of everything that we know. And so therefore, God has authority over everything that is created. And right here in these first several verses of this passage, God is showing us that He has dominion. He has authority. He has authority. He is greater than His creation. You think about when it comes to mathematics and you have that little arrow. And that, depending on which way that arrow goes depends on what is greater and what is less than what it comes before it. And so God is saying here in this passage, Moses, I want to remind you that I am greater than creation. See, there was a problem that was going on there in the context of the story. You had this Nile River. Now, we don't have a conception about it because the Nile is not a deep the Nile is a whole lot more than just a deep fork river. The Nile River stretches from the Mediterranean Sea into the north all the way down to Lake Victoria on the northern side of Tanzania. The river stretches over 4,000 miles in length. 
Historically, it has been thought to be the longest river in the world, but now there's some people that argue that maybe the Amazon is longer because of the arguments of where the river starts officially. But the Nile River flows all the way from the Mediterranean all the way down to Lake Victoria. In Egypt, it is at some places over 1.7 miles wide. And just in this decade, it has been measured during the normal flow of the river that the water flowing through the Nile River is over 360,000 gallons per second. That's a lot of water going south. So if you're in Egypt... The Nile was everything. The Nile was the source of life. The Nile was where you got your water for cooking. The Nile was where you got your water for drinking. The Nile was where you got water for your livestock. The Nile was where you got water for your your crops. The Nile is where you did your bathing. The Nile is where you did this. The Nile, without the Nile, you had no life. So in the Egyptian culture, the Nile was considered to be one of their multiple gods that they served and one of the multiple gods that they worshipped. And so when God comes into the scene and the first thing, the first plague that he is going to bring is turning changing the Nile into blood, he is saying, I have authority. I have sovereignty. I have power over creation. I put there in your notes, if God can create it, then God can change it. And God is saying, you worship the Nile. Pharaoh worships the Nile. All these people are looking at going, the Nile is a God. And he says, no, the Nile is not a God because God created the Nile. And sometimes we get dependent upon things. We start to rely on things. And we think we have to have that thing. And then we forget that that thing is a created thing. And brothers and sisters, sometimes we need to realize that God is greater than creation. So God comes in this story and as he's speaking to Moses and then Moses speaks to Aaron and then Aaron speaks to Pharaoh and as they tell Pharaoh, this is what is going to happen. You go back up there in verse 15, he says, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, Pharaoh, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent and you shall say to him, this is verse 16, you shall tell Pharaoh, this is what God is going to do. Why? Because God has authority over you, Pharaoh, and has authority over the Nile. But he doesn't just limit it to the Nile. See, God is going to show them that God's authority is not limited. So he says there in verses uh, 17, Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. And then he says, not only will I strike the Nile, and it will turn into blood, But then, notice in verse 19, he says, Stretch out your hands over the water of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water, so they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. It's not just a matter of saying, I am going to turn this flowing river into water. It's every, every body of water that you have, both in a cup and in a jar, in your pond and in your outdoor pool. All of this will all turn to blood. Why? Because God has authority over everything. Which reminds us that there's not a single thing in your life that God does not have authority over. I know I mentioned him last week, but R.C. Sproul used to talk about the maverick molecule. He used to talk about that if there is just one single molecule that is not under the authority of God, then God is not God. 
And brothers and sisters, sometimes you and I think that we can compartmentalize. You and I think that we can segment things off. Sometimes you and I think that we're going to give God this, but then we're going to keep that. Or that God has authority over that, but God doesn't have authority over this. Sometimes we start to think that, yes, we will yield to God's authority in this arena of life, but not in that arena of life. And we forget God's authority is everywhere and over everything. Which means God has authority over my sin. Which means God has authority over my time. Which means God has authority over what I think and what I say and how I respond and how I obey Him. God has authority. And God's authority, as He is showing, He says, I have authority over creation. So when He is saying this, when He is saying this to Pharaoh, Pharaoh is, you can just imagine, Pharaoh is sitting there going, Yeah, it's not going to happen. Oh, yeah, God does not have authority. I have authority. I am Pharaoh. And so God is coming in to reveal. He said, First, I told you about my sovereignty, Moses, in the first part of chapter 7. And now I'm going to show you my authority because this is what I'm going to do. Brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded that God's authority is not limited and it is not hidden. God shows us his authority in everyday life. It makes me think about it, and you're more welcome to turn there if you like, but it makes me think about a passage like Job. Job, Job chapter 38. And so Job has uh, gone through a terrible a number of afflictions. Job's friends have come and they've tried to comfort him and they've tried to accuse him and they've tried to explain away what is going on. And then towards the end of the book of Job, Job or God begins to speak to Job. And it says in Job chapter 38 and verse 19, God speaks to Job and listen to what he says. Where is the way, where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take to it its territory, that you may discern the past to its home? You know, for you were born there then, and the great number of your days are, or the number of your days are great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has a cleft, who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain in the land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make grass sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whom's womb did the ice come forth? Who has given birth to the frost of the heavens? The water became hard like stone in the face of the deep is frozen. God goes on to explain to Job, Job, do you understand that you can see the evidence of my authority in nature? You can see the evidence of my authority all around you. So you go back to Exodus chapter 7 and God is coming in as God is saying to Moses and he is saying to Moses who will say to Aaron, who will say to Pharaoh, and then who will say to all the Egyptian people, God is over creation. God has authority over creation. God is not limited and he is not hidden. All the people of Egypt, all the people of the Hebrew nation, all the people will know that God is God because everyone will see what God is doing. So God displays his authority. But then you get to verse 8. And if God has authority and God is over all of creation, then what that means then, church, is that we as believers, we are under God's authority. We then are less than God. So what does it say in verse 8? 
I'm sorry, verse 20. Moses, and I, I wish you would underline this. I wish you would highlight this. I wish you would circle this. I wish you would commit this to memory. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. Period. Now, your translation may have a little bit different of a punctuation, but here in the translation I'm looking at, it says, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded, period. Now, we got to think about what is going on. Well, God had just said, Moses, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take the staff. I want you to get in front of Pharaoh. I want you to tell Pharaoh, Pharaoh, God, when I strike with this staff, everything's going to turn to blood. Everything, not just the Nile, every piece of water, every drop of water, it's all going to turn to blood. And as soon as he said that, then Moses, what does it say? Moses and Aaron did what God said. Can you imagine, imagine what would happen if God's people would just do what God said? Can you just imagine what the effect would have if God's people just did what God said to do? We don't have to manufacture something. We don't have to create something. We don't have to devise something. We just got to do what God told us to do. So Moses and Aaron obeyed God. Verse 20. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and he struck the water in the Nile. And all the while, water in the Nile turned to blood and the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Why? Because Moses and Aaron obeyed Sometimes we miss, miss the way that God uses people. See, Moses and Aaron, they obeyed God. And not just that, but then Moses and Aaron were used by God. Who struck the Nile? Aaron struck the Nile. Who told Aaron to strike the Nile? Moses told Aaron to strike the Nile. Who told Moses to tell Aaron to strike the Nile? God. God used human agents to bring about God's will. And God is not done using people today. In fact, you go to Matthew chapter 28, and God, through Jesus, tells us to go and to tell all people about Jesus Christ and to see people be made disciples and be baptized and taught and brought up in the way of obedient faithfulness to Him. God says, Church, you are the agent to there go, therefore go and expand and advance the kingdom of God. And the church sits there and goes, Won't do it. Won't do it. Pigs you know what to do this with. Never tried it with a sheep. But I've tried it with a heifer and I've tried it with a steer. Trying to break them to lead. And if you're smart, you start when they're small. Manageable size. But if you grew up in the house that I grew up in, we weren't that smart. So we would wait until that animal was as high as your shoulders. And so now you're sitting there with a halter and a lead rope and you're trying to convince this animal that it needs to walk with you. And this animal looks at you like, I am three times your size. I don't really care about you. And you are sitting there and you're trying to pull on this animal. So then someone comes up and they grab the tail and they twist the tail. Or then you got the little stick and you're trying to hit them with the stick. The whole time you're trying to get them to move and they're just looking at you going, I don't want to move. I don't want to move. I don't want to move. Sometimes that's how we are in the church. God says, do it. And then, and then we think we're going to go get another 20 or 30 other people around us and we're all going to do that together and therefore we're justified. And now we feel comfortable and now we're like, well, we don't have to do it because all these other people are doing it, so therefore we're justified in not doing it. God said, do it. 
So here in the text, you see that it says, verse 20, I, I just can't get past this. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. God said, this is what I want you to do. They did it. They were used by God. Why? Because they were submitted to God. They were used by God because they were submitted to God. It makes me think about in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 and verse 12. Scripture records this. It says, Now many signs and wonders were done regularly among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico, and none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord's multitudes of both men and women. It's like these disciples in the early church, these apostles in the early church, it's like this early church said, you know what, we're just kind of crazy enough that we'll do what God calls us to do. What God tells us to do, we will do it. And then when they did what God had told them to do, all the rest of these lost people are going like, wow! But we come together. We come together. And sometimes when we come together, all I want to do is feel comfortable about doing what God has told me to do. And then we wonder why we have a world outside of these doors that want nothing to do with God. Because they watch a whole group of people come inside of these doors and say things and do things and claim things that they won't live outside of these doors. And if they won't see us living under authority to God, then why should they live under the authority to God? Why? If it's not that big of a deal, let me, let me, let me put it like this. This last Wednesday, storms are coming. And everybody has a different way they respond to storms. And I'm not trying to say what's the right way or the wrong way, but just here's, here's how my mind works. If they're that dangerous, then why do we have so many storm chasers out there following them around? I mean, the storm chasers, the weathermen, panning pain is sitting there on television going, run for your life! And I'm just thinking, if it's that dangerous, then what are they all doing out there? Now, I understand you're going to go, you're going to say, well, Spence, 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 I, I, I get it. I just, you know, sometimes it's like there's a, there, there's a disconnect in the messaging. Can you imagine us Christians sitting here going, get right with Jesus, get right with Jesus, and the world is watching at us, saying, how about you go first? So you see we're in the text that God says, I have authority over creation, but then you also see these believers that then, then submit to God. I heard a story here a while back about a preacher, and he was on an airplane, and as he gets on the plane, he flies around quite a bit from speaking speaking engagement to speaking engagement, and he gets on the plane, and sitting next to him on the plane, there is a, there's a lady, and she is obviously very concerned. She was obviously very scared. She's obviously very anxious, and so he thought, you know what, I'm going to put her mind at ease, and so he leans over, and he says, well, ma'am, is this the first time to fly? And she said, yes, and I'm very scared, and I'm very nervous, and he tried to assure her and tried to give her confidence and said, well, ma'am, don't you, I, I fly a lot, you're safe, the pilot is very good, I, fly in this, I have flown in this plane and this route multiple times, there is nothing to worry about. And so she seemed like she was a little bit more at ease and the plane takes off, about a two hour flight, they land safely, no issues, the preacher looks over at the woman and says, now ma'am, didn't I tell you that everything would be okay? And she said, oh yes, she said, yes, you were right, you were right, and he said, well, don't you feel better now? And she said, well, a little bit, but my arms are really killing me. And he said, well, why are your arms hurting you? And she said, because the entire time I was not willing to put my full weight in the seat. 
So the entire flight, she had held herself up off the seat because she was nervous about putting her full trust in the seat in the plane. How many times do we live like that? God's in control of everything. God has authority over everything. And yet you and I are living our lives with our rear just up off the seat because we don't think we can trust in God. When we forget that everything is under the authority of God. So we see here in this text that God is showing not only does he have authority over creation, but the believers then act and they submit and they behave like he has authority. But, verse 22. Not only do you see God over creation, not only do you see the believers submitting themselves to God, but then you see the effect of rebellious hearts. See, so many times rebellious hearts, their attitude is we are equal with God. Look at this in verse 22. I want you to see it with me here in chapter 7. But but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went to his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Listen to what is going on here in the text. So God says to Moses, and then Moses says to Aaron, and then Aaron comes down, and he strikes the water. Everything turns to blood. Some Bible commentators will talk about that in the Hebrew language. Blood is both a substance and a color. So there's some people that try to criticize this story and to say when he turned the water into blood, he just turned it into the color of blood. You take 360,000 gallons of water a second and you turn that red, that's doing something. But then they ask the question, well, how did the magicians do it by their secret arts? And so some excuses have been brought up that one of the ways they did it is through, during, during different times of the year, you would have the silt, you would have the runoff, that it would stain the water. You know, so many times when you got rebellious hearts that don't want to submit to God, they start trying to make mimic of what God is doing or they start trying to excuse what God is doing. They start trying to find a reason or a way to say, well, I can explain this apart from God. And so many times that is the fruit of a rebellious heart. The rebellious heart says, you know what, I know that God said this, but you know what, I can explain it a different way. Or I know that God has commanded this, but you know what, I think I can achieve it a different way. Or you know, I think that God is moving and I can see God's hand and I can see the work of God, but you know what, I am going to go about it a different way. So many times a rebellious heart says, I am equal with God and so that I can do the same things that God is doing. Now, I find it interesting here in the story that these magicians, they couldn't turn the water back to the original state it was in. They could try to mimic and they could try to duplicate what was going on here, but they couldn't reverse what God had done. In fact, it tells us in the text in verse 25, seven full days it was like this, and the best the magicians do was try to duplicate what was being done. There's a lot of questions I have about this. How in the world did they duplicate it? If the water was already all turned to blood, how could they duplicate it? Did they go get some fresh water? Did they go buy some bottled water? What did did they do? I I don't understand. But they couldn't reverse it, and they couldn't change it, and all the things that God had done, they couldn't undo. But yet so many times, a rebellious heart and a rebellious mind will look for ways to either mimic what God is doing to say, see, this isn't God, or they will make excuses to say, this isn't from God because I can explain it in a different way. And not just that. You see, the magicians in verse 22, they did the same by their secret hearts. 
So then what does it say in verse 23? Pharaoh turned and went into his house. He sees all of this happening, but instead of considering or instead of turning to the Lord, what does it say? It says that Pharaoh, in other words, resisted and denied God. Now you may say, well, Spencer says that his heart was hardened. God said he was going to harden the heart. We talked about that last week. When it comes to the sovereignty of God. But instead of listening to what God had to say or considering what God was doing or to give audience to Moses and Pharaoh, Moses or Pharaoh or Moses and Aaron, Pharaoh just simply just said, he turned and he walked away. David was talking about that this morning in Sunday school about the stony ground and the seed thrown upon the stony ground. And how many people hear the word of God, they hear the promises of God, they hear the message of God, and what do they do? They just decide to resist the, the, the tugging of God in their heart, and they just turn around. They resist and they deny God's authority in their life. And what are they doing? It says there are seven full days passed, but what they are doing ultimately is they are forfeiting opportunity and time. This is my testimony. Here I am at 42 years old, and I'm still pursuing an education. Because God told me to do this in my 20s. And I said, I'm not doing it. And then finally in my 30s when I was like, all right, God, I'm going to do it. God said, good, but you're about 10 years late. And that's my story. That's, that's, my, that's my testimony in a nutshell. God told me to do it. I didn't want to do it. And what I did was I forfeited about 14 years of my opportunity and time to serve him. You think about here in the book of Exodus, and you get down to Exodus chapter 12, and it says in verse 31, it says, then, Mo, then he, talking about Pharaoh, then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. God knows that eventually Pharaoh is going to say, get out. He's going to eventually acquiesce to what God is calling Moses to tell Pharaoh to do. This is eventually going to take place. And yet, what Pharaoh is doing is he's sacrificing the Egyptians. They're sacrificing the opportunity and the time to serve God. Let me give you another picture about how we often forfeit time to serve God. The Bible tells us that every single one of us have sinned before God and every single one of us stand in judgment before God because of our sin. And the Bible tells us that God sent His Son and Christ died for our sins and made a way possible that we be forgiven of our sins. And the gospel of Jesus is just simply the good news that if we will confess our sins, repent of our sins, and turn and place our faith and our hope in Him, we can cry out for forgiveness and God will save us. And then you have people today that say, well, I'm not going to do that now. I'm not going to do that until later. And they resist and they deny and they say, no, 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 that is not for me. But then Paul writes things like in Philippians chapter 2. He says, and starting in verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is, in, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Then verse 9 is where it gets really uh, just right in our face. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that... At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that there is going to come a day that every single one of us in this room will confess Jesus as Lord. Every single one of us. So why not do it today and not forfeit the opportunity and time that you have looking forward. You see, here in this text, there was a rebellious heart, and the rebellious heart said, I'm the same as God. And so they thought they could mimic, they thought they could excuse, they thought they could resist, they thought they could deny, they thought there was nothing, no harm done in forfeiting the opportunity and time that God was giving them. And then you fast forward to the end of Revelation, and you have the great white throne judgment. It says the books are open, and the people are gathered, And standing before God, there are both goats and sheep. The goats represent the lost people that will spend an eternity in hell. The sheep represent the saved people who will spend an eternity in heaven. And when they stand before God, time and opportunity will be no more. The chance to turn to God. The chance to yield to His authority. The chance to submit to God's will and God's plan for your life will be over. God's authority will remain. And brothers and sisters, when we think about the authority of God, we see it on display here in Exodus chapter 7. So then the question comes down to us, well then how do we apply that authority to our lives? So we see how God demonstrates His authority over creation. We see how believers and followers of Jesus Christ then submit to God's authority over their lives. And then we see how people like, like Pharaoh and the Egyptians, how they then turn from God and rebel against God. So then how do we then bring all this down to us here today. We've talked about the three core values that help guide and and give structure to the ministries of the church currently. To build families, to teach the Bible, to be the church. So how do then we apply a text like this in these three core values? Well, just three ideas quickly there at the bottom of your notes. Number one, submit to God's authority in the home. To submit to God's authority in the home. It's easy for you to come as a family, to come to church and say, oh, God's in charge, God's the boss, and then we go home and God's not in charge. God has no authority in our homes, whether what we listen to, what we watch, how we do with our time, how we spend the, the money, how we do with the resources. We do not submit to God in our home. And if we won't submit to God in our home, then how do we expect our kids to submit to God outside the home? We wonder why we have such a high rate of young people that are graduating out of high school and they're leaving the church. Because the church, because the parents had left the church out of the home for years. Not just that we submit to God's authority in our home, but that we teach God's authority over creation. We teach people. We tell people. You're not in charge. God is. We teach God's authority over creation and we practice God's authority personally and daily. We show people this is what God's authority looks like. 
Can you just imagine how the story might be different? If God comes to Moses and says, Moses, this is what I want you to do. And then Moses goes to Aaron and tells Aaron, this is what I want you to do. And Aaron gets right up there to the bank of the river and he has the staff and he looks at Moses and says, maybe we should, have a, maybe we should talk about this. Maybe we should pray about this. Maybe we should take some time to consider about this. Maybe we should kind of say, well, we think this might happen, but we're not sure if it's going to happen. What if they just stop short of obeying what God had told them to do? How many times do we forfeit the power and the authority of God on display because we stop short of what God is calling us to do? So the question I want to leave you with this morning is do people see the authority of God displayed in your life? Do people see the authority of God displayed in your life? Here in Exodus chapter 7, we see the authority of God displayed in what he does over nature. We see the authority of God displayed over what he does with believers. And we see the authority of God displayed in how people respond in a rebellious heart to him. So where are you at? Are you a magician trying to come up with an excuse, trying to come up with some way to recreate what God should be doing in your life in your own means? Are you Pharaoh and you realize that God is calling you to do something, but just the fact that God is telling you to do it and you don't want to do it means that you're going to resist and deny what God is calling you to do? Or are you here this morning and are you a Moses and Aaron that are seeking to be obedient to God? My fear is that this world has enough magicians and pharaohs. What this world needs and what this community needs is more Moses and Aaron's. Is God's authority evident in your life today? Will you bow your heads with me?